So, welcome to episode two of Fishing Lines. Uh, this week we had Keith Arthur come in the studio and we had an absolutely fantastic time for about an hour and a half. Hope you enjoy the session as much as we did having him in the studio. Welcome to Fishing Lines, from novice to expert, from river to sea. You're in the right place for the biggest stars and the best information on the UK fishing scene. Obviously, I've done a little bit of research and I've seen you on TV for 30 years. The, the bit that I can't see in any interviews anywhere and the, the bit that doesn't immediately jump out is how did you start fishing? When, when did you start? When I was a kid, I was probably six or seven and, and you know, it developed family holidays. All, we're always to the sea and, and I remember in the very early days we used to go to someone's bungalow on Canvey Island which is in the Thames estuary yeah. and there was a pond and a sea wall and the sea and the pond had mostly eels that was the only thing I ever saw in it and um, what else was I going to do I don't you know when I got a tiddler net and caught tiddlers and then got a little type of fishing rod nobody the only person in my family that ever fished was my mother's mother's father um, and my mother's family come from Plymouth in uh, in Devon on the Devon Cornwall border and um, Grandpa Rocky as he was known who I never met right. um, that was their family name was Rocky I'd never met him um, he was uh, a bit of a caretaker on Plymouth Dockyard and um, he used to fish when he shouldn't have been fishing he used to fish for the conger eels that frequented that place and legend has it that uh, he actually lost a boat while he was fishing and, and, and it might even have been a submarine, but something, something vanished on his watch. And uh, that's, that's family legend. But I, I've, I've not lost anything. He's lost a few hooks and a couple of floats, but I've not lost anything as big as a submarine. <laughs> that's, yeah. So it was probably in my blood from there, but, but I, lived, I come from Holloway in North London and we have Finsbury Park just up the road, the New River, which ran through Finchley Park where you weren't allowed to fish was the obvious place to fish because you weren't allowed to fish there. So it was obviously better than the places where you could fish. Yeah. Um, Hampstead Ponds, Highgate Village, um, the, the, the ponds on, on um, Hampstead Heath and Highgate Fields. Um, the Lee wasn't far away. I was riding with my bike to the Lee when I was 10. That was about four or five miles. I had to put a peg over my nose because it was in Tottenham. As an Arsenal fan, it always went a bit against the grain to go that way. And especially when I went to Northumberland Park, because I'd drive right, I'd ride my bike right past the stadium to get there. But yeah, that was that was where I came from, basically. Right. Okay. So it, it was it was a bit self-taught then, because obviously you went from being all sort of self-taught to being a very very proficient angler. And usually there's people in your life that take you under their wing and sort of teach you the ways. And who were the people, or was it just that you you mixed with the right people? I'm a baby boomer. Um, I was born in 1946. Uh, where I lived was that, that there was um, houses bombed out opposite where I lived. So they built flats there. They moved the people into the flats from Caledonian Road that was bombed out worse than that. And um, though a lot of those were, were the same age as me and we all went fishing. It's what we all did. Yeah. Um, what else were you going to do? You know, when we were 14, we started playing cards all night. And when we were 16, we started going to clubs. But between those ages, we went fishing and, and we'd get on our bikes or we'd get on a bus and we'd go. And if they didn't go, I'd go on my own. We had things in those days called Red Rovers where you could buy a weekend ticket for London Transport for half a crown, 12 and a half pence. And you could go anywhere on London Transport as many times as you liked. 
So I used to go to the Thames. I used to get on the, the bus and go to um, Teddington Lock. Um, yeah. You could get a, a bus to Teddington and walk up to the lock and fish there. Uh, I could get a bus to Hampton Court on a Sunday. The same bus went on further to Hampton Court and I, and I fished there. And yeah, just, you know, got used to fishing, really. The Lee, it was the Lee mostly. And the ponds when I was a little kid, um, you know, up to about 10 or 11. And then the Lee after that. And um, when you grow up and most of the fish you catch are gudgeon, little perch, little roach. There's no, no carp to be caught. Carp, myth and legend. You saw a few of them in Hampstead Ponds and nobody could ever catch them. So you, you want to get more proficient at catching small fish. And then the obvious thing is to try and catch more fish than everybody else. And that was, that was I suppose, where I got into match fishing. Yeah. Uh, it's a problem for the youngsters today because... So, so my young ones obviously both fish and have done from a young age. But it's trying to make them interested in going on a regular basis rather than picking up the Xbox or picking up something else. And half the problem is, is finding somewhere that's of interest where they can go and catch a lot of fish and there isn't carp. Because once you've felt a carp run, once you've felt a 10 pound carp run, going and catching a couple of roach or a, a, a small tench, it's just not the same. So we're, we're, I think we're in a weird situation with kids these days. Uh, well, if they go to the places that I used to go, They'd be very lucky because mostly those places don't exist anymore. Yeah. You know, the, the, the fact is that commercial fisheries have taken over everything. And you think, well, you're going to go, going to, go to a commercial. And what's the, the, the fish they stock in those are carp because they're relatively cheap. They grow big. People feed them for you to make them bigger still and live for a long time. So they're the obvious things to stock. Um, yeah. And they're easier to catch than most other species because they're so greedy but if there were the park lakes available and if there were the canals the canals are still available but they're not as accessible as they were like when i was a kid you could go to the canal there was no such thing as having to pay to fish a canal every every bit of canal everywhere was free the london anglers association had some bits and if you saw the bailiff then you had to pay him but you never saw the bailiff and then you joined the laa because it was three quid a year anyway so you know you, you could go and fish almost anywhere but now most park lakes aren't accessible if they are accessible they're controlled by a club which you've got to join most clubs most clubs are very snotty about having kids mm. in, in their ranks and they put rules in place so those kids can't go on their own so it's very difficult to fish organically you know yeah. you, you've now got to, you've now got to prepare yourself to fish you can't just say i'm going fishing and go to i'm, I'm lucky I mean, you can't see it, but over there, about 300 yards, is the, the semi-tidal River Thames. And from here, right up to Staines, as long as you're on the towpath bank, fishing is free. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, you need a rod licence, but if you're under 12, you don't need a rod licence. Under 13, you don't need a rod licence. If you're over 13, up to 17, the licence is free, and you can go there and fish for nothing. The problem is now, no tackle shops. Yeah. There are no tackle shops between anywhere. It is unbelievable that Richmond and Kingston, which are two big towns on the River Thames, there's, there's 180,000 population in Richmond, 190,000 population in Kingston in those territories. And there is one tackle shop that is really not in Richmond. It's in East Sheen, which is where Tony Hancock came from. If you, 
no, it was East Sheen, sorry, that wasn't East Sheen, East, East Sheen, which is at Ron's tackle, which was opened at George's tackle in 1960-odd. George McCarthy opened it. It's now run by Ron Chenery, who's, who's an old mate of mine. Uh, and that's the only tackle shop for miles and miles around. So if I live here and I'm a youngster, I've got to get two buses to yeah. Ron's shop to get half a pint of maggots and then get two buses back to fish in the river that's in the end of my road. Whereas when I was a kid, between my house and Finsbury Park, there were four tackle shops or four places I could buy a tackle. Only two of them were tackle shops, two of them were pet shops, but they sold maggots and they sold odd packets of hooks. You know, so it's much more difficult. Fishing, a fishing trip now for me has got to be planned. And for youngsters, it's got to be planned. And, and these are all obstacles in their way that are very difficult to surmount, very difficult. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um, I, even though I, I've probably got to a stage in life where all my tackles laid out so I can be as quick as I possibly can out of the blocks, I've still got to think ahead and go, well, if I want maggots, that's 13 miles that way. And um, yeah. what pellets have they got? Well, have they got this, have they got that? And it's, it's a week's preparation. And when you're busy at work, yeah. it's just, even for an adult with a car, it's difficult. Yeah. I mean, I can go, I've got tins of sweet corn in the shed. I've got tins of luncheon meat. I've got boxes of pellets. I've got a few boilies in the fridge because there's some very big roach in the Thames down here. And the way to catch the very big ones is on boilies. You keep getting interfered with by carp and bream and the occasional barbel and stuff like that. But, but if you want to catch a really, really big roach, I've let the cat out of the bag now. Really, you've got fish boilies. Um, you, can catch, you can catch decent sized roach on bread and sweet corn and pellets. You catch them up to a pound and a half. But if you want one of the, and a, a two pound Thames roach is a special fish. I've not caught one down here since 1971, but, but my mate John, he, he had three or four in one season, and another one of my pals, Tony, had seven in a season, and they're wow. special, special, and, and like 214 was the biggest, and, and they got the boily craze, I think, thanks to Terry Hearn, who's got a, who had a boat moored here, he's moved it now to further upriver, but he had, a, he had a boat moored here, and he would regularly clear his freezer out. So he'd go down onto the jetty where his boat was moored with literally a wheelbarrow full of bait and tip it off the back of his boat. Yeah. And he'd catch carp and bream and everything. But, but the roach, I think, um, I'm not going to use foul language, I'm going to say that roach live, big roach live on carp shit. All the waters that have got huge roach yeah. have got carp that eat lots of boilies. Yeah. And partly digested boilies go through their system into like a paste and they're very attractive for roach tree. And we know that a lot of wild animals eat the fecal matter of other wild animals. Yeah. You know, my wife's got a pony in the field down the road. I'll go and pick the poo up in the morning. I have to chase three spring the spaniels off or I've got nothing to put in the bucket. They'll come and I'm going to eat it. Like it's especially steamers in the winter. It's like <laughs> breakfast. Oh, well, there's a fresh one. And they love it. And, and yeah. I'm sure that roach are the same. Yeah, yeah that, that roach like eating carp poo. So if you can imitate that, and I'll put a boil on and hack the edges off it and chuck it out. And there's no surprise that, that Sauce was the best seller down here. Terry was a dynamite man and, and Sauce was his chosen bait. And yeah, that was, uh, mm. there you go. Yeah, it's, uh, it's some way away from a stick float and some tears. Oh, I took a club, a club, a verilum angling club from St Albans, uh, wanted to do a bit of fishing on the tidal last year. So I said, I'll meet you down there and show you. So I met them down there. They said, are you going to fish? Said, no, I won't fish. I'll just say, oh, no, no, you've got to fish. So there's no flow now. I mean, it, all, it was a great stick float fishery down here. And now there's no flow at all, even though it's semi-tidal. It flows up for two hours, down for two hours. It's like a pond for the rest of the day, unless there's quite a lot of land water coming down. So I set up a, a five metre whip 
and um, after 10 minutes, I caught a perch on maggots. I only fed hemp, didn't feed anything else. I caught a perch on a maggot, then I caught two days, then I caught a roach, then I put hemp on and I caught a fish cast. Every cast. Well, unless I missed a bite. But it was literally every throw of coconut. They couldn't believe it. To go in the float. And, and I, I miss a lot of bites, but when I say I miss them, I don't strike at a lot of bites because I know you can't hook those. So I only strike at the ones you know you can hook. I learned that over... 25 years of fishing matches down here and people would sit and watch me and thought I was blind because every time I struck, every time I struck, they hadn't seen a bite because the bites are tiny and the line bites are enormous. Yeah. And the bites just hold the float down a little bit and you can just lift into even on hemp. The float will be doing this all the way down the swimming. They go, what's he doing? Thank you. Anyway, so yeah, so starting fishing there, that, that's how I started fishing. And uh, yeah, we've gone a little bit off topic, but uh, no, it's it's fine. It's fine. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I'm a fan of stick float fishing myself. I yeah. I grew up um, middle Trent at Fiskerton, and yeah. um, in the glory days of um, seeing coach loads of people turn up and listening to uh, to Tommy talk about it. I, I listened to your podcast this morning as I was walking yeah. the dog, and it's just it's a glory time. You you look yeah. back at that era with such nostalgia, and I used to read about it in the Times and the Mail, and they were just giants of the sport. But it's uh, the days it when it used to be um, busloads of people turning up for matches every single weekend, yeah. and unless you're fishing for football now on the Trent, you don't see another angler. I used to go to Burton Joyce for the Thursday Opens from North London. Um, I've fished. Burton Island, Bass Island a few times. I used to fish the Burton Opens when Tony Scott used to run them. Um, I used to fish the Home Pierpont Opens on, on the lakes uh, because they were good matches. And, and you were fishing against a blooming good standard. I'll, I'll never forget first open Joyce, the first Thursday Open. I rocked up and Barry in draw and there and Dean and people that were household names. I mean, I'm going back to the very, very late seventies and I drew peg one, two, six, um, bottom of the rack. And I said to Johnny Rofe, I said, what's that like, mate? He said, it's all right. He said, you'll catch a few. He said, but um, yeah, it's okay. So I went down, I set up a stick. The method. And uh, off on Thames, holding it back a bit. And I'd catch a roach, and I'd catch two gudgeon. Then I'd catch another roach. Then I'd catch another three or four gudgeon. I was going nowhere. I started pinging out a few maggots. It's a bit further. Chucked the waggler out and just caught roach after roach. I finished up in 14 of, of, um, of roach. That was fifth on the day. Barry Rudge, I think, won the match with £17 from under the cables, about one, one three nine one four something, something like that. And... Um, yeah, and to come fifth in that company was just absolutely outstanding. And, and there's a funny little story about that. Actually, for years, I had a mascot, which was a, a pig. It was a plastic pig that came floating down on that match. And I didn't know what it was. I netted it out the water. And, and obviously, it was a money box. It was a plastic, pink plastic pig money box. And a dog or something had chewed the nose off it. But I set it on the basket behind me. It was probably, probably the in the mid 70s probably 77 78 maybe something like that and i put it on my basket behind me and uh, of course i did well so i took it back and i did i thought i'll have a game with this so i walked into the, the nelson after the match and um 
And Dennis White was one of the first people I saw. And I bumped into Dennis a few times, like you did on Opens, because you had to go a long way to fish a match in those days. You know, you, you, if there was not, the lower Thames didn't have any matches on because it's free fishing, so you couldn't peg it. That yeah. was overcoming the end, and it was size limits until 75. So it, it was difficult fishing matches on the lower Thames, so we had to travel all over. Uh, and I walked in, he said, How you done, Father? I said, oh, I've had a stone, Dennis. He said, Oh, have you ever had a stick? I said, No, I've had them on the pig. Uh, because everybody in those days was calling the feeder the plastic pig, and we had a laugh about that. And I explained to him, no, I had indeed had them on the float. In fact, in those days, um, I set up a feeder rod on winter leagues. That was it. Didn't like feeder fishing. Not interested in chucking a ledger weight out at all, except unless it was bream match on the Welland or the Witham or somewhere. I, I, was, I was a float angler. And you mentioned Fiskerton, and my biggest natural water weight on a match in England was 58.8 from Peg 90 at Fiskerton. Right. Um, and I had him on the feeder. Really? Chuck him right over to the far bank. Yeah, Peg 90, it's a wide peg. And um, I had to borrow a shock leader off Dave Harrell, who was two pegs upstream, just been sponsored by Water Queen. I was using a rod that I'd got for Wayne Swinsco. He'd asked me to get this specific rod because I was working for Daiwa. And I managed to find one in stocking and shop somewhere they were discontinued. When I got there, Tommy Picker had already got him one, so he didn't need the rod. So I put the rod in my bag. When I got, it was the only rod I had to fish the peg. So I borrowed a bit of £10 Water Queen off Dave Harrell, used Wayne Swin what was going to be Wayne Swinsco's rod, and um, I had about £30 in the last hour chucking this, this big feeder across to the far bank, and Steve Toome was above me, and um, caught my ear old caught fire that day. But they, they were great days. They, they, were just, they were just absolutely great. That was on the UK Champs as well. So that was, you know, they were good fields when you fished the trend. Good, good fields. Yeah. It, 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 well, it's always been a magnificent river. And I, th mm. I can't remember when, I think there was a world chance on it, maybe 25 years ago at um, the rowing course, what's it called, Home Pier Point. Home Pier Point, 94, yeah. And the, uh, the cormorants had hit in the months leading up to it, and I think that was the first time we all started looking at each other going, this is a bit of a problem. It, 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 yeah, it, it's strange because although the cormorants were blamed and the cormorants have been blamed for a lot of ills, it was actually clear water that caused that match to be so useless right. uh, because the roach, still, the roach were still there. They just didn't feed. And, and, and it was what I called clear water syndrome. It coincided with the cormorants. And don't think cormorants had no effect because they have. But the Thames was exactly the same. They had one national and Trent one on one section. I think there were 57 blanks. And... You can't say the fish weren't in the trend because they were. Right. Uh, it, it was just something happened that waters everywhere went clean. I think it was something to do with the switching off of the power stations, with the clearing up of sewage works. Instead of sewage works pumping out nice partially treated sewage with a bit of fertiliser in it, they started pumping out tap water. You could you know, drink it if you possibly could. I didn't try it. But <laughs> it, it was... Yeah, you know, it, 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 the whole of the whole river ecology changed. I'll never forget down here, down at, at, at Richmond. I've got a pretty good record down here. It's 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 not my home venue. It is now because I live here, but I didn't used to live here. Um, my wife, I, I, the house I live in now, my wife was born in. So you know, I, I've I've I, I, she was working in Kingston. I was working in Kingston. We met and got married, and, and I bought her parents' house. So that's that's why I'm here. But uh, I, I've only lived here for for the last about 
30 years. But before that, I had a very good record on the title. It was a stick float river, and, and I fished a stick float because I learned it up north. And the people down there didn't learn it up north, so I was <laughs> better at it than them. It was as simple as that. So I, I, I could catch a fish or two down there. And I won a match at the start of the season, drew absolute crap, drew a, an area I really don't like, just upstream of the slipway at River Lane. And um, I'd about, I owned up to having four pound. So they came along with the scales and I had sort of a mixed bag of roach, perch and dace. And to win, Danny, you need dace. You need 125 dace to win a match in the old days to win a match down here. And if they were bigger than everybody else's, you won. But 125 dace was my target for a five hour match. So I pulled me that out. What you got? Okay, oh, four pound. Oh, it's a big four pound there. Yeah, not much more. Tipped them on the scales. Five fifteen. I said, oh, what's come off the, what's come off Petersham? And I was sure he said, oh, someone's had £10. So I thought, oh, that's a... He said, but what, you know, I weighed him in. And I, I think it was, it was either 5'11 or 5'15. And he went, oh, that's winning it so far. I said, well, you said it was £10 off Peach. And he said, no, £1.10. <laughs> like, and, and, and the previous year, I'd fished four matches on Peach and not had less than £18. Wow. And mostly £20. And it was just different the river was different the flow had gone there yeah. was this stringy algae in the water and and your keep net was covered in what looked like tobacco at the end of the match and it was just and that was the start and we saw 76 cormorants in the trees on, on eyes with eight down the road and we blamed them yeah. 76 cormorants they eat a pound a day a day five days a week let's say that's five days that's um three three hundred and eighty days per day going times 76 you know it's, it's and you multiplied the numbers and there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds a day disappearing from attempts but they were there not all of them were there all the time but some of them were there all the time and they've now bred and the Thames is probably like the Trent probably better than it's ever been it's, the Trent's gone through not being hammered not being hammered by matches and that's you know match fishing definitely doesn't help quality no. sport uh, I think it's changed on the trend. So I fished on Collingham Weir for probably about four years on the bounce and yeah. got to know those very first pegs very, very well. Mm. And it was a bream water. Mm -hmm. um, you could legitimately turn up there and on a very, very heavy feeder have 70 or 80 pounds in a day. Yeah. And, and that wasn't uncommon. You could have 100 pound bags sometimes. Yeah. And I think in the four years I fished there, I had one barbel. Yeah. And now you go and fish the same if you can get a peg now. I mean, what is it? A hundred pounds for the first four pegs? It's, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, but it's the, crazy. Do, yeah. do, do, you know what, do you know why that is? Do you know why that is? I've got a pretty good idea. Go on. Um, well, the trend is stocked, has been stocked by the Environment Agency with Barbel yeah. to improve the quality of Barbel fishing, to re-establish the stock. And their brood stock comes from the Trent. Right. There's a backwater on the Trent where I think it's on not Piscatorial's water, but I, I might be wrong. But barbel go into this stream to spawn every year. And the environment agency go down, they net out the barbel, take them to Calverton, do what they do with them, mix the, nest, mix the eggs up with the swan's feather because I've watched them do it, mix, mix the eggs and milk together with the swan's feather. And then they take the barbel back and put them back in the trend. They also take back 65% of the fry. Okay. So because they've taken the potential for fry out of the trend, they take the fry back. Now, 65%, that's 
that was the number I was given at the time. It may have changed and it may not even happen now, but that's the number I was given at the time by the man who did it. And less than 1% of, of, of eggs survive to fry. So they're multiplying that by 65 straight away. So they're throwing barbel into the river. And mm. once you start getting barbel into the river, the roach sport goes through the floor. Yeah. You know, you look at the trend at, at Burton Joyce, where you 186, you could be 186, 187, they were the barbel pegs on, on the roadside. You could go there and win with barbel on matches. Don't catch them there very often now because there's no barbel stocked on that bit. They're all stocked on the lower bit. They get then washed down as fry into the tidal. Fish are very clever. They spawn at the top of every stretch. They mm. spawn in the fast water. So when the fry hatch, it gets washed downstream and, and percolates through the whole river. So the whole river gets established with, with, with stock. That's how it works with, with their, their breed. And obviously they get down below Collingham Weir. They get washed through the weir swim and go, oh, stop here, it's nice, it's a big slack. And, and that's it. And, and that's why the, the lower trent in particular is loaded with barbel and not quite devoid of roach and dace, but there were nowhere near as many. The Wye was the greatest roach river in the country. Now in the winter, you get them in Hereford, don't get them anywhere else because it's all barbel everywhere else and five pound mm. chub. And not, not knocking it. You know, barbel and rivers like barbel have saved river sport, like carp have saved lake sport. But that's how it's that's how it's evolved and changed. It hasn't been not interfered with by man. I, that's I my opinion know. anyway, and opinion to like backsides. <laughs> the, the only difference is my opinions are always right. If they weren't, I'd have a different opinion. <laughs> I think going back to what we're talking about, though, I think the ecology of the rivers things as well because yeah. of what we used to do with pumping hot water in and putting sewerage in. If you run a uh, a lead now across the bottom there's loads of clean gravel runs yeah. and i think it's cleaner than it ever has been i think marble are thriving because of that completely absolutely right couldn't agree more so that that was quite a that would be a big pint of vodka <laughs> <laughs> it's going back to what we were talking about earlier a proper pint of maggots not um yeah. not a dribble in the bottom of a tin so um tight lines yeah you did 30 almost 30 no, no, 20 years 20, 20 19 years in 11 months but i'm not bitter yes oh, the other month wouldn't have made but but that that started um yeah just carry on ask me a question <laughs> I was going, well yeah obvious question how did you get into it obviously from being a, a face on the match circuit from the very beginning yeah from the very beginning, um, I sold furniture for a living. First of all, I laid carpets. Then that hurt me knees too much. So I started selling carpets and furniture. Then I managed furniture shops. And somebody asked me to manage their tackle shop. I went and managed their tackle shop. They opened another branch or bought another shop in another part of London. I went to manage that. And one of the customers was John Carding, who was um, match editor for David Hall's Course Fishing back in the 70s. And um, he used to come into the shop and, and he'd, he'd, he was a great um, he was a Francophile. He loved everything French to do with fishing. He was a regular at Angers, sadly no longer with us. He, he passed away as a very young man, which was a tragedy. But that's another story. Um, and he asked me to write an article um, about the London Anglers Association's attempt to ban bookend feeders. So I wrote about the history of the Bokem feeder and I wrote it as a fairy tale um, with okay. literally as a fairy tale with, with, you know, bad, 
barons not wanting <laughs> to do this good barons because the, the block m feeder started with a bloke called bill um bill twig and and, and we my mate and I nicked some off him and we developed our own feeders and we went away and made them and and, and the block end feeder came from North London. It came from, from us, me and my mates and our team. Um going back to the um the that would have been the mid nineteen sixties. But back in the seventies. So I wrote this story um, for David Hill's magazine and he said, Don't write it like that. He sent it back, he said, write it properly. Write the, 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 in, in real terms. So I did, and it was all longhand with a pen. So I did that. Then I wrote a couple of other features for him, and then he asked me to go and do features with him. And then in 1989, he'd booked um, Mark Downs and another very famous England international, who I won't name, um, to do some uh, two videos in Ireland. And at the last minute, the other bloke, not Mark Downs, the other bloke pulled out wanting more money. So he offered me a thousand pounds to do 10 days fishing in Ireland to make two videos, uh, two of me and two Mark Downs. So we were backup fishermen for each other. Oh, that, that's a lot of money. Yeah. You know, Grand then was, was 19, 1989 was a lot of money. And um, so I went out there and did that 10 days holiday as well. Got Darren Davis to come with me. who was at the time as my, known as my apprentice. We, we, we traveled, his mum got me to take him fishing to learn the etiquette and, and parts of match fishing again years ago so um i went out to ireland and we made these videos and when i got back the video production company said would i like to go and work for them and do some more videos and do the treatments with some of the stars they wanted to video with so i went i did that didn't do it for very long i got bored there wasn't enough to do i was earning too much money for not doing enough work so i went to work for diver but so that was my grounding in video then in um, 1993-94 a television company was formed locally called Wire TV, and it was an amalgamation of five different cable service providers. And they ran their own, they set up their own consortium, they set up their own TV program called Wire TV. And in the evening, they had something called Sports Wire. And on Sports Wire was a fishing program, and it was based in Bristol. And the producer kept phoning me up and saying, Can you go? It's Bristol, mate. I work for Dyer. My, my area is the East Coast. I do Essex, Suffolk, Norfolk, you know. I can't get to Bristol in time to do the show. So on the 13th time, another producer phoned me, someone called Darren Williams, and he said, um, oh, Keith, I'm really in trouble, mate. I've been let down by two guests tonight. No chance you can come in, is there? And I was driving home from work around Chiswick Roundabout. I said, mate, Bristol's two hours away. He said, oh, no, we're not in Bristol anymore. We're in Camden. I said, oh, whereabouts in Camden? He said, oh, um, I, said, I know exactly where you are. I love the pegs opposite. If I draw the peg opposite where your office is, it was where, where do you remember the ill-fated Goodmore uh, TVAM yeah. started? Yeah. Dead opposite there. It was that building. So I said, yeah, I'm MTV just up the road. So I'd be going into that studio and all sorts of stars are going. So I said, yeah, I'll get there. I said, I have to come in my work here because I'll go. So I came back to here before we lived here. Told my wife I was going to do his TV show. Went in there. Didn't hear anything for three or four weeks. Then another guy called Alan Herndall phoned me up. He was the executive producer and said, I'd like to have a word with you. So I went to see him. He said, we'd like you to do alternate weeks, you and Dave Bird. So I said, oh, it's all right. I can do that. So I went in every other, um, it was a Monday, every other Monday evening, I went in and, and did this hour live with various presenters Nicky Horn DJ who did um, the basketball on channel four he was one uh, Mark Webster who's still on talk sport I see when I go into talk sport occasionally see Webbo in there lovely lady called Kate Bellamy who's now packed up that kind of work and, and lives in the western isles and, and 
and Mick Brown, who was another radio DJ, did lots and lots of stuff. And, and we used to make our own trails and we make our own trails for other programs. It was great fun. And I've not really, I've not really got any fear of a camera. I, I, talked, I thought, you've got to jump into this. So I talked to the camera like it's me, mate. I don't see a look. If, if you just look at a black hole, it's terrifying. Mm. But if you, if you look at it like you talk to it like it's one of your mates, that's fine. And, and I got away with that. And then um, after almost exactly a year, they came in and said, unfortunately, the station's closing down. Um, Sky Sports need more sport content. So um, they've offered us Sky Movies and Sky Sports at a more attractive rate for our cable companies. So we're closing YTV. Um, and then somebody said, Adam Herndl, the, the executive director said to me, executive producer said to me, you're right. He said, they're definitely going to have the fishing show. I said, yeah, I can see me on Sky Sports and Andy Graham. <laughs> and and oh, yeah, it's just, that's young. See that coming. Anyway, about three weeks later, he phoned me up. He said, yeah, he said, um, they want you. He said, I don't want Nicky Horn as a presenter. They've got another presenter lined up. Um, want you to come and have a word with me. So I went and had a word with him. He offered me the job. I phoned my boss at Dyer and said, great news. I'm going to be on Sky Sports every week. And he said to me, um, you've got a decision to make. You either work for them or you work for me. So um, I was then concerned that I wouldn't be able to do anything else except work for Dyer. What do you want me to stop writing for Angling Times, which I've been doing for five years? What do you want me to not make any guest appearances, which I'd done on behalf of the NFA in anti-angling campaigns. I was their main voice to, 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 to condemn the antis as charlatans and terrorists. And, and um, so I said, well, I'll have to resign then. And I left a job where I was earning 27 grand a year with a phone line paid, everything paid with Volvo estate sitting outside the house that I didn't have to pay for and went into 150 quid a week. Um, and, 40 quid a week off angling times and occasionally 40 quid a week off david hawks magazine and and it was a major step yeah um my wife wasn't working at the time she'd stopped working five years before um so it, it was it was a major step i spoke to people i respected in the sport i spoke to peter drennan who i knew i spoke to sandra scotton who i'd known for a long time and she knew how i worked for diver she knew diver as well and they said well just go for it mate you'll be all right you'll make your way through and um when i told the people at christmas tv who were making the show uh, they got me a day a week filming um, for another 50 quid and and i had enough to muddle through and then two years later um I got a phone call from a man called Luke Riches who worked at the time for Matchroom. And he said, um, can you come over on Thursday? Harry Hermont's a word with you. I mean, I turned down my first chance at co-presenting Fishermania in 1995 because I had the John Smiths on the same weekend. Wow. No, I can't do it. I was already working for Sky doing tight lines. Mark Pierman, the producer, phoned up and said, oh, can you do um, Fishermania? I said, no, I'm fishing a match. <laughs> no, mate, I can't do that. I've got John Smiths at the weekend. And that was when Fishermania changed from being always Bank Holiday Weekend. But it's back this year as Bank Holiday Weekend. But they changed it because I couldn't make it. Anyway, so I went over to see Barry Hearn at his offices in, in Romford. And I could hear him having this conversation upstairs with someone from Lad Brooks, sorting out sponsorship. And he came running down and says, right, oh, mate, you got a cup of tea? I said, yeah. Said, right, come with me. Sat down, sat at his desk. He said, who do you work for? I said, well, I don't really work for anybody. Right. He said, what do you earn? <laughs> exactly like this so i told him he said um 
right, he said, I've got a deal for you. Um, you earn about 25 grand a year. And I upped it a bit. I said, about that? Yeah, he said, right. He said, I want to be your manager. He said, here's the deal. You keep the first 25 grand. I want 20% of the rest. And if you don't earn 60 grand a year, we shake hands and walk away now. Wow. I said, okay, that would do. <laughs> and he said, and I'll tell you, I'm going to make you Anglin's first millionaire. That was his exact words. And, and I've got somewhere upstairs in the loft, I've got the Angling Times front page. Um, where it says more or less relates his conversation. It was a press release from Matchroom. So Barry Hearn became my manager. My uh, rate with Sky went like that. Um, within, within not too long a time, when, when Chrysalis stopped, was stopped from doing the production, Sky took it in-house and I got a proper exclusivity Sky contract. I was paid a lot of money to work for Sky Sports, including the other stuff I was doing, I was earning more than the Prime Minister. Wow. Now, the Prime Minister doesn't earn as much as you think. <laughs> but he, earns more, he earns more than a bus driver. And, and, he and, does. And, and from like just into the 2000s, I was earning more than the Prime Minister with my radio work and my writing and blah, blah, blah. So that's how I got into tight lines. And I think I kept it because... I never had any days off, so no one else had a chance to do it better than me. <laughs> I think I missed 10 shows in 19 years and 11 months, and most of those were because I was on location with Sky in Mauritius or New York or somewhere. I never, I've, I've had, in all the years I've had in broadcast media, I've missed one show on, on radio when I lost my voice, and doing a radio show, we know, I now take those. They're... Okay. Um, they're called Vocal Zones. And Kevin Wilmot, who, who was um, one of the editors at Angling Times, deputy editor at Angling Times, is also a chorister. And, uh, and, and my voice goes a bit. So he recommended me to Vocal Zones. So I stick one of those in my mouth and it gives me about an hour. So um, with, without croaking, because, you know, I, my voice is all but worn out. The years I've been using it to excess. Um, but that's how I got into tight lines. And, and ultimately, with doing the radio show as well, it meant really I had to wave goodbye to match fishing. Um, and I fish more by proxy than anything. I fish through other people. But I've always loved telling people how I catch fish and try to help them catch fish and, and try to um, enhance their enjoyment of the sport. Yeah. I, I didn't always do it if they drew next to me. But, <laughs> I, I would I would tell what I'd done after the match. There was one. Yeah, anyway, that's that. So that's how I got into TV, and and that's how I stayed in TV by not being sick. No, that's that's uh, it's a top tip. If you want to hang on to your job, don't be sick. Don't go Tom and Dick. That's right. <laughs> so out of all those years, um, talking about giving away information, who would you say out of all those guests struck you as? either the most talented or knowledgeable? And I know that's a difficult question because you literally had a, a who's who from every single discipline. Oh. It, it is impossible because they, a lot of them were brilliant in different ways. Some weren't very good. Um, some in the early days weren't very good because I wasn't very good. Mm. And I couldn't, my, my interview technique would be to ask someone the question, give them the answer and allow them to agree. <laughs> and, and that isn't necessarily the best way of doing it. Uh, and I, and I learned um, 
eventually how to do it properly uh, well as properly as i can do it and and but you know when, when you listen to people like and he was much younger then people like terry hearn who is you know some people would class as a time bandit who, who who catches fish out of waters by staying there until he's caught the rest and there's only one left terry hearn is one of the greatest anglers ever yeah. ever whatever species i've watched him fishing for perch i've watched him fishing for grayling i've watched him fishing for dace i've watched him fishing for all manner of fish terry hearn is a genius angler mm. if you want methodical um, uh, um demonstrative alan scotthorn is marvelous inspiring tommy pickering you can't do better um you know but they, they've all got their own way. Darren Cox is a master and he talks very quietly. <laughs> and when people talk quietly, you have to listen harder. So you learn more. It took me ages to learn how to tie the bloody lasso knot he uses for tying on pellets, but I learned how to tie it. And, and they, all, they all teach you different things in different ways. Ian Russell, chemo, the carp angler. Yeah. Um, Ian Millen, another carp angler. People think carp anglers aren't very good anglers. Some of them, Julian Cundiff is a bloody good angler. They're very, very, very good. I've got a mate local to me who would never make it on TV. I'm going to have him on my podcast, bloke called John Gard who catches all these big roach out the tide. He's a, he's, he, he wrote a chapter in Terry Hearn's first book because he held the Thames record for carp with a fish £37.4. He's got 99 £3 perch out the tidal Thames. He phoned me up one day, he said, you, you about, mate? I said, yeah. He said, can you come down? He said, I've got a, got a £3-pounder. He sent me landing there. I said, yeah, okay. So I got on my bike, literally got on my bike, pedalled off down the towpath, got with my camera, got to where he was. He said, you won't believe this, mate. I said, well, he said I've got two. I said, really? And he was standing in, in waders, trotting with lobworms. He said, I've got another three pounder in. He said, I've got a three, four and a three, ten. I went, wow, that's fantastic. He went, oh, hang on a minute. So then took a photo of a three, fourteen, a three, ten and a three, four. And isn't that at the same time? Three, three pound perch like that. I've still got the photo. That was in 2007, I think. And, and he had 49 perch that day and 30 of them were over two pound. And three of them were threes. That's, you know, that was how it used to be down here. But anyway, that's that's so he, he's another great angler, fishes for everything, and now he's more into bird watching. And he sends me pictures of little owls in their nest and tawny owls. There's an unusual coloured tawny owl, it's not got its plumage properly, and yeah, that kind of thing. Real, real, um, I'm not, I nearly called him a naturist then, but he certainly isn't one of those, a real naturalist. <laughs> I, I wouldn't talk to him if he was a naturist, believe me. <laughs> Brilliant. So, spinning forward to today and your yeah. recent announcement um you've started a new venture and started a podcast off in the last couple of weeks yeah um that that is a, a longish story as well but I'll, I'll only treat you to the end bit um a chap contacted me I'll, I'll do the short version chap contacted me a few years ago if i wanted to do a radio show on radio five and i didn't um he then contacted me again a little while after and asked if i wanted to do a show on radio five and i said i would and it got knocked back um so he then contacted me again quite recently and said do you fancy doing a podcast i said well not really i said i've, I've got i've got issues here my wife had a stroke four years ago and um she needs someone here most of the time and that's me so i don't get a chance to go fishing as much and, and i didn't want to commit to you know do it. and i thought well, can i really be bothered 
oh, no. So I sent her an email. I said, thanks very much, Rob. I said, but not really. And he phoned me up and, 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 and had a long chat with me and put my head right and, and said, I think you should do it. He said, because I think people will enjoy it. And, and I think you can do a good job of it. He said, we've got two ways of doing it. We can sell it to the BBC, which will earn us X, or we can earn nothing and see what comes along. What do you fancy? I said, well, what's, what do you think's best? And this bloke runs a production company, makes productions for various radio stations and his own stuff. I said, well, what do you think? He said, well, I think we should go for X. I said, okay, we do it. So I'm currently making a podcast for nothing. He is broadcast. He is recording it, editing it, broadcasting it for nothing. Um, and we're going to see where it goes. And, and if we get a big enough audience and if enough people like it, if it becomes um, holistic, then we'll earn some money out of it. I don't know how he knows all that stuff. I, I know how to talk into a mic. I don't know much else. Um, and, and, but he, if he's prepared to invest some time and energy into it, then I am. And, and, and you must never tell anybody this. I really enjoy doing it. <laughs> and if Sky, had, if Sky had said to me, Keith, we want you to do five, five tight lines free for a year, I would have done it. <laughs> Barry Hearn would have had my knackers for a handbag, but I would have done it. Um, because it's, first of all, it's um, a great thing to do. You know, to, to be able to sit, I've sat next to George Best in makeup. I shook Kumar Sangakara's hand shortly after he retired. I've had long conversations about bowling with Bob Willis, the late Bob Willis. Um, I, I've spoken about the Arsenal to Kenny Sanson. I, I've, I've um, had debates with Charlie Nicholas, Paul Merson about football and stuff. And, and, and that's, you know, you can't, people haven't got enough money to buy that. And I got it for nothing, absolutely nothing. And I, I've had, you know, Famous names come up to me and say, I listen to your radio show. Ian Wright, no less, said to me, I, I bumped into him one day, he said, and I said, oh, mate, so it's a real, you know how much of an honour it is for me to meet you. He said, you're the fishing bloke on Talk Sport. <laughs> I said, how do you know? He said, I recognise your voice. I listen to your show. Brilliant. Yeah, it, it's, it's remarkable, mate. It is just remarkable. So that, you, you, I'd do it for free. But I've got paid for it. And I've got paid enough that I don't have to do it for I don't have to do it for money if I don't if I don't want to do anything I don't do it but if I want to and I like to do it so I do it and and you know I help people it is problems giving of my time now because I'm needed here more but uh, yeah I'm, I'm I'm happy to do it so yeah so anyway that that so that's how this podcast started and he said and we we want a name for it and um, I I. I started Fisherman's Blues on, on TalkSport. Barry Hearn got me the gig and I went in and met the boss of TalkSport. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I want to do this. What do you want to call it? I said, I want to call it this and I want that to be the signature music. I said, I think it's a great song and it's got a fish in it. You know, I, I might have gone with, you know, I don't know, I might have gone with something else if I didn't. I might have gone with Taj Mahal, Fishing Blues. Who knows, which is another great song with fishing. I might have gone with Dar Williams, Fishing in the Morning. There's loads, I might have gone with one of the songs off Big Trout Radio. There's loads and loads of songs with fishing, but I love the water boy. And I love Fisherman's Blues. So Rob said to me, what should we call it? I said, well, how about another Waterboys song? He said, yeah, what do you think? I said, well, Strange Boat. He said, why Strange Boat? I said, well, the last couple of lines of the second verse are um, about carrying a strange crew. Um, carrying the strangest crew that ever sinned. Hmm. And I thought, well, 
that's anglers because all anglers are sinners because we're all sinners so and, and all anglers are strange in their own way so i thought that, that carrying the strangest crew that ever sinned i thought was just about right so it's called strange boat and also it doesn't say fishing so people that don't like fishing won't not listen to it if you know what i mean there's a nice double negative there but um, I, I, want, I wanted to call my, I, I wrote a book some years ago. I think I've got three left. This is one of them. I won't write another one because I didn't like how um, I treated um, the, the, that's it there. And, and it's called, as you can see, fishing, the best excuse for loafing in the countryside. Well, I didn't want to call it fishing. I wanted to call it the best excuse for loafing in the countryside. But WH Smith's told the publishers, if it wasn't called, fishing the best excuse for in the countryside they wouldn't run it so, um, we gave in and um i let them call it fishing um the best excuse for loafing in the countryside but i think you know the description of angling as the best excuse for loafing in the countryside is a pretty good one and i've used it many many times on the radio so yeah but that's yeah I, I, and i'm not plugging a book because i haven't got it yourself so, <laughs> you know, Amazon might still have some in the back of their warehouse for two seventy-five, or in the pound shop. Like my old videos now appear, so on DVD, but you can buy a bloody box set for about. I think that they're over overpriced in the pound shop, but uh, yeah, they're, they're they're still around. But yeah, that was. I, I love writing it. I write very quickly. Um, I, I wrote to um, a target date, and I finished it in the target date. And the best day I had was three and a half chapters sitting around a pool on the Algarve. So it doesn't take me long to write things down. And, um, and uh, but I, I was let down by the publishers. But that's, you know, that, I've got a book. How many people have written a book? Not many. Tommy has now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I heard him talking about that. I think my favourite Tommy moment, he came in after he just lost Fishermania on tight lines. And yeah. so, so, so how are you doing, mate? This is in his best northern accent. Yeah, better now. Went home, smashed the house up, kicked the cat, but yeah, I'm fine now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, um, we, 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 as you know, we spoke about that. I've spoken to Tommy about it lots of times. I mean, one of the first ever reasonably long conversations I had with Tommy Pickering was after the 1979 National on News and Cam, which was one of the worst nationals of all time. There were 61 blanks out of 80 on my section. Um, Tony Scott fell asleep holding his pole, dropped his pole. He dropped an 11 metre Garbolino pole, 1979. Poles were a lot of money. He dropped an 11 metre Garbolino pole into the Great Ooze by falling asleep on the bank. David Hall, mentioned him before, the magazine publisher, sadly no longer with us. We had a ground bait firing competition, <laughs> trying to land it on the ledge of the sugar beet factory wall opposite. And I had a bite fishing with the most ridiculous tackle you could ever imagine i tried to catch a small perch or something out the pandocks in front of me they call them pandocks they're lily pads so i, I tied an alsey bomb onto the end of my line plumbed the depth it was nine feet so three feet off the bottom i tied a dropper put a 22 hook and two bloodworm on it and i dropped it into the lilies put the rod on the rod rest and left it and it went and snapped me and i don't know what it was don't know what it was. Never had another bite. Only bite. And you might be the first person I've ever told that story to. Never had another bite all day. Never had another bite. But Very yeah, good. that was almost opposite Roswell Pitts. But yeah, that was the first time. And, and, and um, Barnsley won it. And Tommy dry netted. He was a runny dry net. 
and it was in the days when we were all um when when you had to wear the right clothing it's all how can hunt now obviously or guru or drennan or dyer or whatever it is now but in those days it was dartex and tommy had this one piece dartex suit on that was black and he was a, there was much less much much less of tommy pickering in girth uh, then than there was now i said you should have slipped in your net and pretended you was an eel tom <laughs> And that was one of the first conversations I've had with Tommy Pickering. I've never reminded him of it because he might have been offended. <laughs> I did like what he was saying about don't give me an opportunity to take your cap away to his team. And I think there was yeah. a lot of self-reflection that he'd done as to why he'd lost his cap. But he's a big enough angler to look and go, well, I wasn't doing the right things. I was doing the kind yeah. of fishing I wanted to do. And I, th I thought it was good advice. Going back to what we were saying earlier on, don't be ill. Don't, don't have an opportunity yeah. to give your job up. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Keep turning up, keep turning out, and, and you know, everything will be fine. You've got to really mess up to be thrown out of something. Yes. I take any any time I'm, I've ever been dropped or left out of a team, I take it extremely personally. I'm, <laughs> not, I'm, not, I'm not very good at criticism, and, and um, I, I, I don't forgive or forget either. Uh, it's a terrible trait and I can't help it. I mean, an example of that, nothing to do with fishing. Um, I used to buy a lot of my clothes in Marks and Spencers um, because they were nice average clothes. I had a wardrobe full of shirts on tight lines. I had 70 shirts in a wardrobe here at one time, 50 odd pairs of trousers, and they all came from Marks and Spencers as well as my undies. And um, I had a disagreement with them about interest on a credit card. Um, I used to, I, I had a, I, I used my Marks and Spencer's card for all my business account, but they wouldn't let me pay by direct debit on my business account. They'd only let me pay by bank transfer or I couldn't pay by direct debit on my business account. So I paid by my bank transfer and I got my um, statement for the year. I never checked them every month because I knew I'd paid them. Got it for the year. What's this? What yearly statement? 64.50 interest. Where did that come from? So I looked down November, £64.50. Went back on the statement, got it out and I paid it. Went on to the bank, online bank, I paid it. So uh, you couldn't, no number to phone them. It was an email address. So I emailed and said, think you've made a mistake here, blah, 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 blah. N nice email. I, I don't have a go at people first time. First go, I'm always pleasant. So I think you've made a mistake. So I got this email back. Hi, Keith. Okay. <laughs> um, thanks for your email. Um, appreciate what you're saying. Uh, but if you look at the, look at your account carefully, your payment for that month should have been £1,239.32. You had £1,239.22. And under our terms and conditions, if you don't pay the full amount, you have to pay interest on the full amount. So for the sake of £10, you've had to pay £64.50. As a gesture of goodwill, it's all right. As a gesture of goodwill, we're going to refund it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. If they'd have stopped there, I would still have a wardrobe full of Marks and Spencer's chinos and pants and socks. And instead of having bloody Ted Baker, which costs about 10 times as much, my wife insisted on, luckily she's, she don't do my shopping anymore. So I'm Uniqlo <laughs> and people like that now. So um, I've got a Uniqlo branch in Kingston, which is fantastic. So um, it then went on to say, however, we respectfully suggest that if you set up a direct debit, you'll never be able to make this error again. But they couldn't do a direct debit on my, my business bank account. So I wrote to them and told them they couldn't do that. Therefore, I will never be doing any business with Marks and Spencers again. That was February 2014. Thank you very much. There is no MS stuff in this house that's less than six years old. 
There's loads that's over six years old, but there's none that's less than six years old. Yeah. So I don't forgive. It, well, it's a sign of the times. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a sign of the times. Same as you say, people can't just stop at giving you good service. People can't stop and go, sorry <laughs> about that. We made a mistake. We'll refund it. Let's shake hands and yeah. move on with life. No. Yeah. This is how you can do it better. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> if we can just improve upon you as a person, this is how we would do it. Uh, thanks. I'll take your advice. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm conscious this is your evening, Keith, but I can't let you go without talking about Florida. Oh yeah, yeah. Because my love affair with the Florida Keys. Well, it's the it's the same with me. And I I used to see your videos when you used to go on tight lines. I'm like, that place looks interesting. Yeah. And I was off doing other things around the world, and I sat with Terry Eustace one night. Yeah. And he told me this tale over a few beers of these huge herring-like fish that you could catch on a fly that jumped out of the water. And we had another couple of beers and another couple of beers. And by the end of it, I went, right, I'm going to catch a 100-pound tarpon on the fly. Yeah. Sounds easy. And here I am 10 years later. I've hooked plenty. I've not had a 100-pounder to the bank. But mm. it's just so diverse. I... I've never been anywhere with just such diverse fishing on every single day. It's an unbelievable place. Yeah. As you'd expect, I've got several lengths of stories about the Florida Keys. But I was, as usual, I'll start at the beginning. Um, in 1992, uh, we were told by our boss at Diver that if we achieved our sales target, we would have a special, a special um, sales meeting. If we beat it by 10%, we would have a very special sales meeting. And a very special sales meeting was in the Faro Blanco Marine Resort in Marathon in the Florida Keys, yeah. where True Lies was filmed. True Lies was actually filmed in that marina, and they blew up Knight's Key Bridge, if you remember that. Story. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. So, so we stayed there at Faro Blanco Marine, and we had um, three days' work and two days' fishing, or it might have been the other way around. But we did some fishing there, and and um, and I loved it. I mean, we didn't catch anything big. I did have a shot at a permit actually um, on a a, a, sh a crab, and um, we were polling the flats with Captain Mike Hewlett, who's one of the top anglers, top guides in in Marathon, and um, spotted this permit come out come along a ledge coming towards us. And Robin Moore, who's now the deputy manager director, sales director of Diver, um, we were colleagues at the time. He was standing next to me, he'd been throwing a plug and I've been throwing, I've been waiting to throw a crab. So he said, right, put that crab in front of it, about 10 feet in front of it, make it land with a plop. Plop. By some miracle, it landed in the right <laughs> postcode. And this permit went, that looks nice. And, and it was a big permit, 20 pound plus permit. Yeah. And it started heading towards it and it was about, two feet from it when Robin hit it on the head with the plug <laughs> <laughs> and, and I thought Mike Hewlett was going to erupt he looked like he, he looked like Mount St Helens when it when it went Mount St Helena when that went up he was getting redder and redder and redder and there was bits of steam coming out of his ears and um, Robin said I shouldn't have done that shall I <laughs> And, and and so so anyway, I thought I'll have some more of that. So Roy Marlowe's my great mate, who was there. He was working for Diver at the time as a consultant. He said, "Why don't you join us on on our boys 
trip. And, well, it wasn't called the boys' trip, and it did, it turned into the boys' trip. Why don't you come with, with me and Jack Simpson? So I somehow got round my wife, and it was a once in a lifetime trip that I did at least once a year, um, every year. Yeah. And um, <laughs> yeah, and 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 again because because I really love sharing my fishing experiences and try and enhance other people's fishing. I've introduced God knows how many people. I, I don't know how many. I know that one day my referrals led to 38 days bookings with the skipper that we used. Wow. Um, I've sent a lot of people out there. And, and, and we, our biggest year, we had 17 in our group, not all together, but over the course of, of two weeks, we had 17 people in, in our group at different times. And I worked out, we actually spent $66,000 in Key West that year. Wow. Um, on boats, hotels, accommodation, car hire, um, food. Some drink, although most of us don't drink. I don't drink anyway. I don't, I, I'm not a teetotaler, but I, I don't want to not enjoy fishing because I've had two, two glasses of beer. I'm, I'm going to go fishing. And, and if Roy has a strawberry daiquiri, he's as silly as anything for about two hours. So I'll see what it does to him. So I'm not touching one of those either. So, um, yeah, that, that's how I got that. And, and, and I went and I learnt my tarpon fishing with the lovely Captain Jack Kelly, who, who sadly died last year. He died as I was, I was on my way to visit him. Um, he, he retired up to Central Florida where, he, where he, his family lived, up near Acala. And um, I went to see him a couple of times. He was obviously very, very sick. And I'd arranged to go and see him. And, and I got there on, on the Wednesday, um, got, arrived at Miami about two o'clock. And um, by the time we got out of immigration and, and uh, well, didn't drive straight up because a very long drive after a very long flight. And uh, we were staying in, in the Best Western in West Palm Beach, uh, which sent me a, a note, an email just today saying we're open. Please come and stay with us again. So uh, I got an, a note from his um, from his daughter to say that he just passed away, which was a tragedy. But uh, I fished with his daughter, Laurie. Um, Laurie Parker Kelly I fished with his younger daughter Misty who I knew as a 15 year old who'd come 13 year old who'd come down and clean Jack boat Jack's boat after fishing I fished in central Florida with them Laurie was a charter boat captain in Key West for many years I fished with her there she's just retaken her captain's license and passed it at the weekend so she is she is now Captain Lorraine Parker again so if I get out there anymore and fish with her I'll probably have to pay now instead of going for nothing but um <laughs> But yeah, and I fish with lots and lots and lots of great guys. In fact, Laurie phoned me last night to tell me she passed, uh, and also gave me some more sad news. Anybody that's ever fished out there may know the name Gary McConey. Gary passed away. Um, don't know when, um, but Laurie only found out the weekend when she was in Key West. Gary passed away, and we're all getting older. And she's still in touch with Al Seville, and anybody that's fished for tarpon in Key West would have fished with Al Seville on reel and steel, which was an inboard centre console with a, with a diesel engine in it, which was unheard of in those days. Inboards were bad enough, but diesel, reel and steel, yeah. We, we, we used to catch a lot of tarpon from a spot just behind what was Tank Island, that's now Sunset Key, that we used to call Al's Hole. And it was at the edge of a ledge, and the tarpon used to run it. We used to catch a lot of fish there. Um, and, and I used to go just tarpon fishing, first of all, but bait fishing, not bait fishing, sometimes lure fishing, not fly fishing. Um, I have fished for tarpon with fly and I've had them chase a fly. I've not had one, not a proper one anyway. I've not had a proper one eat it. Um, but I've caught them on plugs, I've caught them on lures and I've caught them on, um, on bait. And, and trust me, the most skillful way is bait fishing. Mm. Not about fly fishing. The, the way that those Key West guides used to fish for tarpon, using the shrimp boat trash, yeah. where they stand on the back of the boat and they chum with cut up bits of bycatch from the shrimp boats and you put 
a fish or a bit of a fish on your hook with no weights, no shot, no swivels, no anything, 50 pound leader, 20 pound main line and a 5-0 circle hook. You put your bit of chum on and you drift it back in what can be four and a half, five knots of tide and the line's fizzing off your reel. And the advice I give to people when I teach them how to do it was the advice that Jack Kelly gave me. Run the line over your finger and if it feels heavy, wind in. It, because sometimes they'll pull line off the reel, but mostly they're snappers or Jack Craval or even grouper sometimes. But very occasionally a tarpon or rip line off your Spanish mackerel might do it as well. Um, but when the line just feels heavy, it's where a tarpon's taken it. If you ever watch them feeding in a chum line, you'll know why. They don't take a bait and swim away. They've got big square mouths like buckets, as you know, and they just take a bit of chumming. Then they take a bit of chumming and they're moving up all the time. And the reason why the line feels heavy, if they don't pull it away from you, they pull it towards you. So the bow in the line tightens very, very slightly. And now I've, I've, um, I've had some great times doing that. Um, the most I ever had in a day on my own was 11. That was fishing with Laurie in a tournament. Uh, and it was just me and her in the boat. So we were chumming, leadering, getting ourselves back on the anchor. Um, I've, I've had some very big fish. I've, I've had fish, they're all estimated. Um, I've fished another bloke called Scott. He, 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 um, Scott Gordon, um, he estimated one at 185. I had out the harbour one day. I've certainly had several 150s. I, won, I played for three hours, 12 minutes on a tournament on an uptide rod, a diver slosh 30 that the drag had gone on and the fish had gone round a buoy. So I had 10 yards of really a braided line. And until I got that line in the boat, I couldn't really put any pressure on it. And tarpon don't like you having line in the boat. They line on the reel, they like being a long way away. And, and for the first 45 minutes, Roy and Jack Simpson, I was fishing the taunt with, swore blind out of stingray because it hadn't jumped. And I knew it was a tarpon. I'd felt the bite. I knew it was a tarpon. And then after 45 minutes, it started the aerobatics. The first jump would probably, it was like Evil Knievel. It would have cleared several London buses and like, 10 feet behind it up the line was my little bit of bait that it had spat out. Bow, bow, don't worry, I'm bowing. <laughs> bow, to the, bow to the Silver King, yeah. Oh, yeah, they're great. And that's and then, you know, I got to love the offshore fishing down there as well. I've, I've caught some lovely fish on fly in the blue and in the Gulf. I, I actually broke the world record for blackfin tuna on fly in the Gulf, and I didn't know what the world record was. But I caught this fish, and, and Manny Ravello, I was fishing with, said, that's a big and good. He said, we'll weigh that when we get back to the dock. And I've got IGFA scales there. And I stuck it on. It was exactly 30 pounds, exactly 30 pounds. That was in 2000. And I looked at a picture the other day. Was it 2009, 2011? 2009, I think. And um, I was a member of the IGFA. And when I got my world record book at the end of the year, the world record caught on 20 pound tip, it was 21 pound six. <laughs> so I battered it a bit, but uh, hey, it doesn't matter. It's you know, I call it, I've got a picture of it. The, the normal picture, I had a great big belly then, this great big belly hanging over my shorts, and the fly rod in my teeth, and this tarpon, not which I'm uh, this perm, uh, this uh, tuna which I'm struggling to hold in my hand. It tasted good, yeah. Now, I, I did ex I did my son a huge disservice a couple of years ago. He caught an absolutely monstrous yellow jack, all his own oh, yeah. doing. He was. Yeah. You know, 11 or 12 at the time, he'd got a vertical jig, he was working it, hit yeah. into this thing and it just took off like a train. Brought it up, got it to the surface, and it was just magnificent, beautiful fish. Mm -hmm. And it, I'll take fish home to eat, 
but I'll only take you enough to feed the family. And I looked at oh, it yeah. and I'm like, do you know, we'll, let, we'll get another one. Let's put this one back. And we did the photos and everything and we put this fish back. And then about a year later, I was looking at the photo and thought, I wonder what the record is for the yellow jack. Yeah. And it's something like £21. Yeah. And this fish is best part of £30. Yeah. So hopefully at some stage you will forgive me. <laughs> they're beautiful fish as well, yellow jacks. And they're not easy to catch. They're not, I caught a couple um 2016 i think um sight fishing seeing them in in the um in a weed line and um we had a couple of that year well, that was that was good fishing too that was where i argued with a skipper i saw a sailfish jump and the guy on the boat wanted to catch a sailfish and i said stop 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 we'll catch that he said the water's too shallow it's 126 feet i said i've got more more sailfish less than 126 feet and i've been more than 126 feet stop and he stopped the boat and within it probably took three minutes before we watched it come up and eat his live bait. Brilliant. You watched it. I, I said, now, what are you looking for, Tim? You're looking for a bin liner bag. They call them trash sacks. I said, it will just look like a trash sack, but it will be coming towards you rather than going away from it. And he, there it is. There it is. There it is. And this thing came up and his, his poor little old um, blue runner that had been used for a bait previously and was a bit like that this sailfish came out put it out put it out of his misery and, and he caught this beautiful sailfish and and you know it, it was it, it is a one in a lifetime fish i mean he's, he's a bit golden like that tim the last fish he caught of the same trip was an 82 and a half pound amberjack oh. I, I just caught one a 65 pound on a jig on, on a proper jig rod yeah. and he had this grouper rod down with a live bait and yeah. he had this amberjack on a live bait 80 no, I, yeah, we, we don't what, kill them and weigh them. We measure them and we use the old length times girth yeah. squared times 800 divided by 800, whatever. So, so that's, that's the sum we use. And he's, he's, he's taped out 82 and a half pounds, his hand project. And Jesus. he's holding it like this. You know, it's a big fish. Big and fish. Is, he used to, is he used to fighting big fish? Because that must have just pulled his arms off. Well, he was a rugby player. Oh, okay. He was a wuss. <laughs> he, he's a wuss uh, any, any big fish he catches he's crying before he lands it oh, I was gonna kill, oh I'm never going to get in and after he's landed he's on his knees and he's having water poured over him and everything <laughs> now, give, him a, give him a Goliath grouper and well it's, you know unbelievable um, but yeah he's, uh, he, he really enjoys it he gets, he gets so it's one of those people that's so wonderful to fish with because he gets really excited and it's not so much physical energy that wears him out. It's mental energy. He just, he's got, I've, I've sometimes got blinkers on when I'm fishing, but he's definitely got blinkers on. And, and you could stick things in him and he wouldn't know because all he's, all he's worried about is getting that fishing. And if he loses one, oh, no. You know, I've, I've been like that once. I lost a very big blackfin tuna out there on a, on a fishing with a Shimano waxwing that I fought for a very long time and I got it on the leader and it went down again and it fell off. And I've got pictures of me deep being distraught uh, with that, like leaning on the side of the, kneeling with my head on the gunnels <laughs> like this. And I wasn't very happy that day but because I've worked very, very hard to catch that fish. But uh, yeah, but, but Tim is, <laughs> Tim's amazing actually. He's a lovely bloke. Uh, but he, I caught his selfie. Well, we caught his selfish for him, and, and he had the full excitement. He had the full the fifty dollar trip. You know, he saw the fish, he spotted the fish, he watched the fish take his bait. He let it turn, circle hook, count seven, close the 
wind the drag on boom there it was in the air all around the boat fantastic yeah i, I love the florida keys i I'm, I'm happy i'm happy catching pinfish yeah, yeah. Caught, caught a pinfish on a uh, caught a tarpon on a pinfish sabiki <laughs> say that again you caught, caught a tarpon. A, you know the sabikis yes yeah, yeah, yeah i caught a tarpon on one of those only about 12 pound the sun always shines on the righteous keith <laughs> Yeah, that's well I uh, I cast netted my first mullet last year, and I was as oh. happy cast netting that mullet as just about any fish I've ever caught. Yeah. Because do you throw? Do you ever throw one? A cast uh, net? Not very well. I. But Laurie, Laurie is Laurie was starting to train me. Right. Um, but we didn't have anything to throw on. But uh, uh, sorry, Misty was starting to train me. The younger, the younger Kelly girl, she was starting to train me in the teeth and yeah I, my first throw wasn't very successful so i said come on you try and catch some bait yeah i mean yeah, I, uh, I, I i bought one while i was over there brought one home practiced all year thought i'd got it nailed and then when you when you stand on the front of a boat and there's actually fish moving about in front of you doing it on the lawn and then doing it under the pressure of having fish two completely yeah. different things lobworms don't swim away <laughs> no not with a shovel underneath them <laughs> brilliant um keith genuinely thank you for your time i it's an honor and a pleasure to do this with you and i as i'm sure everybody else can could just sit and listen to you all night but thank you very very much i've, I've really enjoyed it it's been a pleasure i've got still got 10 vocal zones <laughs> i'll go and get a pint of gin and we'll just we'll carry on <laughs> Oh, it's a pleasure, Neil. Thanks for asking me. I've enjoyed it. It's uh, you know, I, I'm not um, I'm not one of those people that that um, ha, has ever sort of spoken about myself on on radio or TV. I'd rather let other people. Um, I'd rather help other people talk about themselves. So it's it's a bit of a unique experience for me. Um, so I, I've enjoyed it enormously, and and you've done you've done very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. New to the role, but you yeah. know, genuinely, this whole exercise for me is has been inspired by everything you used to do on Tight Lines, and mm. I think it's been missing. There's there's not any sort of podcast or any show where people who do a bit of everything can tune in every week and. Even if you're not a match angler and you've got somebody like Tommy Pickering talking, they're just inspirational to listen to. Yeah. And, and that was the reason yeah. that I wanted to do this, is just mm -hmm. to get people along who are good anglers, who are interesting. And same as you said earlier on, it, if it takes off and a few thousand people eventually listen to it, that'd be absolutely brilliant. If it's a couple of hundred yeah. people enjoy it, it's great for me. There's, there's nothing better for me than talking for a couple of hours, you know, to, to brilliant fishermen and to mates. And what, you better chat with your mates. That's what, what, exactly what I used to say to everybody that was a guest on Tight Lines. I've got a couple of rituals out on Tight Lines. I'll, I'll let you into one or two secrets. But I just used to say to him in the studio, in, in the, the office before we went down, look, it's me and you having a chat in my kitchen. Ignore the cameras. I will tell you what to do. If there's a demo, I will hold it. I'll put it in right. Don't worry about anything. When we talk, just talk to me. Ignore everyone else. That was one ritual. And the other ritual was I'd walk into the studio and the tight line set was taken down and rebuilt every week. I used to kid on it was my back garden. But I used to take it and put all the stuff back on the shelves. All that came out went in boxes and they built three sides of a shed every week and a floor and everything. And I'd, I'd walk in and there'd be 
couple of people doing the lighting and there'd be someone trimming the, sh the, the shelves. The sound engineer would be waiting for me and the guest with, with two microphones and my earpiece. And there'd be a floor manager wanting to know how much sugar the guest has in their tea. <laughs> and, 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 and various people, there'd be, there'd be a, a three camera crew, various people in there. And I used to walk in, walk five yards into the studio, go, oh, stop, 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 everybody, stop. Stop worrying. The talent's here. <laughs> and I did that every single week. And, and, and because some people you get on TV, even those that don't appear that they are, some people are quite a long way up their own rectums. And when the camera goes off, they're very different people. And I'm not. I'm exactly the same. And I've, I, I still have regular contact with a lot of the people um that that are on that, that were on skyman and, and this next weekend fishermania i'll be renewing two two floor managers lee and lee one male lee one female lee and and some my old assistant producer uh, ross melvin he'll be working on it and and georgie faulkner who's, who's the exec producer she's tom edwards is a new producer i've met with mike allen who is the best sports director in the world Mike Allen does all the top gigs for Sky Boxing, football. He does the top gigs. He's a stand-up comic. Okay. So he stands up for the whole show as well. So he's in the truck directing the show. I've got my earpiece in. And while I'm talking, he's telling jokes. But he keeps everybody alert and awake and everybody happy and smiling. And he'll make terrible puns while I'm, I'm, I'm reading out a bit of news and there'll be a word he can pun on and he'll make a terrible pun and I have to keep a straight face. And, but he, he's, he's a fantastic director and, and working with them. And it's, it's such an honour and a privilege to be able to work with, with the people that are at the very pinnacle of their art. As I, as I mentioned, you know, people like George Best didn't mention Rodney Marsh, people, people that... I've spoken to Chris Lewis. I've, I've, I've sat and spoken to him when I was on Talk Sport. I'm, I'm keeping you now. Um, I, I would, Jack Bannister used to do, lovely Jack Bannister who passed away last year. Um, he would do our cricket reports and he was watching it on Sky, sitting in his home in Warwick. And he, he, and, and, but because he was so brilliant at what he did, he, I got him to explain how Jimmy Anderson went from an in-swinger to an out-swinger. It's a seven-degree turn of the wrist, Keith. And I got him talking about why Monty Panasar didn't have another delivery. Why doesn't he cross-seam it, Jack? Trying to bring things that I knew about into the minds of people that didn't know about it. You know, why doesn't he bowl one with his finger down the seam rather than all his fingers around? And, and, and Jack would explain. Mm. And it was brilliant, brilliant radio. And uh, yeah, those, those kind of people are going, you know, when I see some of the modern presenters, whether they'll ever be like Jack was in, in 50 years down the line, I, I have no idea. But it's, it was, it, we've lived through a golden age of angling. We're in a golden age of angling of a different type. And we've definitely lived through and in a golden age of broadcasting. No question about that. Yeah. And, and the thing is, when you surround yourself with people like that, it lifts your game. I think when you go in, when you're given an opportunity and you go in at grassroots, you have that kind of imposter syndrome. You sort of sit there going, I'm, what, what am I doing here? I've got this guy and this guy and he's brilliant. But by spending time with them, you get good. It lifts your game to such a level that eventually you're the person that everybody else is looking up to. Yeah, it's good. 
it's great, yeah. I wouldn't change much, that's for sure. No, indeed. I don't uh, I don't know where the future is going, but um, I think we have gone through some golden times from mm. a societal point of view, from a sports point of view. Um, I don't think I would change it. Obviously, I'm a little bit younger than you, but um, this has been a good time for me. I, I don't think I will yeah. live in much time into the future because I don't like the way it's going. <laughs> don't worry, everything will be all right in the end. <laughs> Good, Keith. Genuinely, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I uh, guess we'll be in touch soon. Probably you'll be telling me you've had your first hundred pounder on the fly. You'll be the very first person to know. I'll be on the phone to you. Cheers, mate. That's great. Cheers, Lovely Keith. talking to you. Cheers, Thanks, Neil. Mate. Bye. Bye, mate.